Our passage uh, this morning is uh, just one verse from Proverbs, um, but we'll be covering a little bit more than just that one verse. Uh, you can find it uh, on page 544 in your pew Bible. It's Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 4. Proverbs 22, 4. Let's stand together, shall we, as we hear God's word. Proverbs 22, verse 4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. You may be seated. Let's just take a second and uh, probably just a second and uh, reflect on this verse. So this morning, um, I had us just read that one verse really because I think it summarizes the teaching of Proverbs on this particular topic. Obviously, we're going to be jumping through uh, the book of Proverbs and and some other parts in the Bible to to bring some other texts to bear on Proverbs 22.4. but I think it's, it's good to just focus uh, on that one verse as we look at our topic this morning. Um, this morning, we're, we're talking about an aspect of the heart life of a believer uh, that's the very center and kind of fountain of wisdom. You know, the book of Proverbs is uh, instructions for wise living. It's instructions on how to live well. If you want to live well, if you want to live beautifully, if you want to live with the grain of the created order of the way God made you to be, or the way God made, world, made the world to be, then you want to live with wisdom. And according to the book of Proverbs, uh, the, the quality that we're going to speak about this morning is at the very center of what it means to walk in wisdom. The presence of this virtue that we're going to speak about this morning, the presence of this virtue in a person's life, if you're growing in this, because not everyone, I think no one this side of heaven can say we've fully achieved this virtue, but if you're growing in this virtue, it means you're growing in wisdom, you're growing in fear of the Lord. And the quality that I'm speaking about is humility. Now, someone once asked uh, St. Augustine of Hippo, who is this great African uh, father of the church, they said, what are the three most important qualities in the Christian life? And this is what St. Augustine, Augustine said, humility, humility, and humility. And I'll just add a fourth one, uh, make it a top four. So the fourth I would add is humility. That would be uh, the fourth <laughs> most important quality. Uh, humility isn't optional for the Christian. It's an essential quality of the Christian life. Uh, in the book Pilgrim's Progress, which some of you are familiar with, we studied it in our uh, Sunday school, in our discipleship training. We're going to study it again a little bit this fall. But in Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, uh, the main character's name is Christian, and he takes a long journey, which is meant to represent the Christian life. It begins with salvation and ends in glory, in the uh, celestial city, in heaven. And at one point, Christian is preparing to leave a place called the Palace Beautiful, which represents uh, the church. It's where he has all kinds of great fellowship with uh, other people, and he, and he learns uh, about the Christian life. He learns uh, from the Bible. And as he's uh, leaving this palace, the road leading out toward the celestial city kind of goes down this steep hill. 
into a valley. And the name of the valley is the Valley of Humiliation. And it says, uh, and, and really, uh, humiliation, by the way, you might be thinking, I know about humiliation. I've been to middle school before. I've been in a cafeteria. I've walked down the hallways of high school before. Well, humiliation, kind of for old Christians, it didn't just mean being embarrassed. Okay? It wasn't this kind of shameful, embarrassing thing. But it was a painful thing. Because humiliation to an old Christian meant uh, the process of being humbled. The process of, of putting off pride and, and learning humility. That's what humiliation used to mean. And so Christian has to go through this valley called the Valley of Humiliation where he's going to be humbled. And it says as he looks down the hill into the Valley of Humiliation, he says, it looks treacherous going down. And yes, it is, said his friend, prudence. You see, they knew it was dangerous for him to go down by himself. So four of his friends from the castle decided they wanted to accompany him down into the valley. She said, yes, it is. It's a very difficult thing for man to go down into the valley of humiliation and not slip on the way. That is why we want to accompany you down the hill. So he began to make his way down very carefully, but even then he lost his footing once or twice. You see, the valley of humiliation is such a dangerous place. It's such a treacherous place. It's such a painful place. That it's somewhere you need to go with some trusted friends. It's a place that you need to go and you need to tread carefully lest you lose your footing. So today we're going to take a walk into the valley of humiliation together. Hopefully a careful walk. And we're going to see what the Lord has for us there. Uh, to do so, we're going to have to talk about the problem of pride. And talking about pride in a room full of people when you yourself are a victim and a villain. Uh, it's a painful and a treacherous business. Uh, and so I, I want to encourage you. You have friends and fellow travelers here with you, um, myself included. So none of us are so far along in the Christian life that we're masters in humility, that we've totally put away pride. The reason we need to look at what the Bible says about humility this morning is that there is a type of humility, which is part of the family resemblance of the people of God. It's a type of humility unique to the Christian, um, which I want to call gospel humility. And this morning, I want to urge you to cultivate this gospel humility, to work at growing gospel humility in your life, not merely because it's wise. We need to cultivate gospel humility because gospel humility is the foundation for your ultimate joy in the Christian life. So we're going to ask three questions. First, what is this gospel humility? Two, why do we need it? And three, how do we get it? So first, what is gospel humility? Well, it's, it, it, you kind of know it when you see it, right? When you see humility in someone, the funny thing is, is you don't actually notice them as a humble person. C.S. Lewis says you just find them as a, as a delightful person, as a person who's pleasant to be around. Uh, someone once said that humility is uh, the mark of a great-souled person. Isn't that lovely? Uh, so as we work toward a definition of humility, this thing that's kind of hard to pin down, uh, we've got to see, and you'll see it in Proverbs 22.4, that it's related to this idea from Proverbs of fearing the Lord. Uh, in Proverbs, the wise man, the one who fears the Lord, is humble. But the fool, 
He's a proud person. He doesn't listen to instruction. He's lifted up. His eyes are haughty. Um, so it's related to the fear of the Lord. Listen, listen to this. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And our verse today, 22.4. The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor in life. Humility has to do with our relationship to God. A correct relationship to God, fear of God, fear of the Lord, results in humility. But it's also related to our self-image, uh, the way we view ourselves in relationship to other people. Uh, and and I, I think a really good definition of, of this side of humility uh, is in Romans 12.3. Listen to this. Paul writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So according to Romans 12:3, humility is a judgment of ourselves based on the reality that's correctly defined by God. God assigns it. So God gives the perspective. So if we're going to create a definition, here are a couple that I think are helpful. Um, Humility is an accurate estimation of our self-importance in relation to God and to others. An accurate estimation of our self-importance. Or, or maybe try this. This one's from John Piper, and it, and it sounds like it's from John Piper. It says, humility is a trembling love for the majesty of God and a trembling sense of our sin, smallness, and dependence. Humility... Uh, the, the humble person in the Old Testament is the person who trembles at the word of the Lord. And humility is uh, what some people would call the photo negative of pride. So it's the complete opposite of pride. If you turn pride upside down, the complete opposite of pride is humility. Now, and to talk about humility, it's going to be important that we talk about pride, too, because pride has kind of two sides. Uh, there's a building up side of pride, and then there's a tearing down side of pride. And see which one uh, kind of rings uh, most true with you. The building up side of pride, this is superiority. This is when we feel good about ourselves in relationship to others, when we succeed and others fail. That's what most people normally think of as pride, a kind of superiority complex. But listen to this. It also has this negative side as well. The negative side of pride, the shadow side of pride is self-degradation, self-condemnation. And this happens when other people succeed and we fail. That's a, what some would call uh, maybe an inferiority complex. And so gospel humility is something that's neither superiority nor inferiority. It's neither building oneself up, which we all get, and it's neither tearing oneself down unnecessarily in the presence of God, and the presence of others. And both sides of pride, they reveal a heart that is dissatisfied with God and is seeking satisfaction in ourselves. What both the superior and the chronically inferior person feel is they feel consumed with their self. They're obsessed with looking at themselves, with thinking about themselves, with measuring themselves in relationship to other people, either favorably or unfavorably. 
when you're operating in pride, it feels like everything in the world comes back to reflect on you. Everything's a mirror. The actions of other people, the possessions of other people, the achievements of other people, it's all a mirror that reflects back on you, either favorably or unfavorably. But gospel humility is something unique. In the world, humility just means being lowly, right? So kind of outside of the Bible, when people talk about humility, a lot of times they'll talk about something that sounds like inferiority. It's a kind of smallness. It's a kind of, uh, of lowliness that, that, that might be compatible with a, with a, a too low a view of yourself. Uh, but a Christian's humility, gospel humility, is both sorrowful and it's joyful. Because it flows from a realistic view of our smallness and God's bigness, God's greatness, God's glory. So Christian humility is about having the right perspective, seeing ourselves from God's eyes, neither too high or too low. So this, this perspective creates at the same time both tremendous weakness in the life of a Christian and tremendous strength. As, as one preacher said, the Christian is always dancing but always limping. You're wounded yet rejoicing the whole time. Uh, so really what humility is, if we wanted to define it, it's an issue of having the proper perspective. Let me just uh, give an example. If you asked a child how big the sun is, and let's say we were standing outside right now, and you asked a child how big the sun is, well, uh, what they might say is, well, let's just see. I mean, it's uh, about half the size of my hand. So, and actually, you know what? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, could, I can block it out. I mean, my hand is bigger than the sun. It's twice as big as the sun. I'm way bigger than the sun. Now, what seems obvious from the child's perspective, we know is totally foolish. Because if we traveled, what, the uh, 92 million miles to get to the sun, you'd know that your hand is pretty pitiful compared to it. In fact, you're uh, less than a speck of dust compared to the sun. See, if you have the right perspective... It solves the problem of the misjudgment. And so what we need to do this morning is, is we want to try to get close enough to God to surrender our perspective to his so we can see ourselves and others as we really are. So we can see where we stand in relationship to the reality that's defined by God. So just as we begin, where do you think you fall on the kind of superiority, inferiority uh, uh, spectrum? I mean, are you more often to compare yourself favorably to other people or unfavorably? Um, what makes you more anxious? Uh, others getting praised instead of you or you getting praised in the presence of others? Where in your life are you most prone to comparing yourself with other people? Where do you tend to see things as mirrors reflecting back on you? Just some food for thought. <laughs> so now uh, we, we kind of have looked at what humility is, but now why do we need gospel humility? Why do we need this unique humility that the Bible describes? Well, first, it's because we're all naturally sick with pride. <laughs> I mean, we, we, all of us deal with it. And the way of pride seems natural to our own mind. This is what Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six says. Whoever trusts his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. 
Proverbs 30, 12. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. Proverbs 16, 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. What Proverbs is saying is if you are dealing with pride, if you are sick with pride, you look normal to yourself. You appear perfectly healthy to yourself when you're caught in the grip of pride. C.S. Lewis says this, if you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. (laughs) If you don't think you have a problem, I've got news for you. You've got a problem with this. Uh, Pride is like the bad coffee breath that everyone else knows you have, but you need someone else to tell you that you have. Um, Apologies to anyone who I've spoken to this morning. Not only that, the effects of pride in our life, the effects of pride are deadly. Proverbs fourteen twelve says this, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. There's a way that seems right. There's a way that seems natural. There's a way that ha- when we just go with the flow of our natural inclinations and guess where it leads to death, to destruction. So pride is serious. Pride hides. Pride cloaks itself. And next, pride is the root of all sin. Anytime you sin, I guarantee you, underneath it, pride is at work. At the root of every sin is arrogance. Why? Well, anytime you sin, I mean, pick whatever sin you struggle with. At the moment where you choose to sin, you're saying, I want this. And I don't care what God says. And I don't care what other people say. I don't care how it affects anyone else. I want what I want. It's an arrogant privileging of your perspective over someone else's, of your needs over the needs of someone else. And and, and that's pride. And we're all sick with it. James 3.16 says this, Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, where pride exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James is saying, when you have pride, you have sin. Every kind of sin, the whole cornucopia of sin, springs out of the root of pride. Not only is pride the root of sin, pride bears the fruit of destruction in all of our relationships, uh, both with God and with other people. And this is because pride is essentially a looking down at the other. Now, you can see how this would totally destroy your relationship with other people, right? Because if God's calling you to love and serve and walk alongside another person in love, it's really hard to care for someone. It's really hard to serve someone when you think you're better than them. It's hard to lift someone up when you're looking down at them. It's hard to walk alongside someone in love when you're looking down your nose at them. But even more than that, think about how deadly pride is to our relationship with God. This is what uh, C.S. Lewis says. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and of people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And in God, you come up something against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. So if you want to be superior, if you want to be in charge, the presence of God is going to be an uncomfortable place for you. And for Christians, there's something especially uh, sick and especially damaging 
it's, a, it's, it's a kind of pride. It's a, a brand of pride, if you will, called spiritual pride. Uh, this is something that Jonathan Edwards said was the thing that killed the Great Awakening. Spiritual pride. It's a type of pride that lurks in the hearts of believers. And this is how you can tell you have it. Spiritual pride causes one to speak of one another's, of other person's sins. With laughter and levity and an air of contempt. The spiritually proud person shows their pride by finding fault with other saints, other churches, other ministries. And so for us, for Christ Community Church, where so many of us come to this church because we believe in the way we do ministry. We believe in the way we handle the Bible. We believe in the core convictions of the church about um, expository preaching, about the authority of God's word. Um, Does our love for the Bible cause us to be conceited? Does it cause us to look down our nose at other churches or or to um, treat what we might see as the deficiencies of of others or other ministries with with love, with contempt, with gentleness? Um, I mean, whatever church you go to, you go to it because you think it's the best one to go to because you like something about it, because you like the songs they sing or you you like the way they preach or you, you like the people there, but... If your preferences um, become a stick to beat other people with, you're in danger of spiritual pride. And so the reason we need humility is because humility is the only antidote to pride, which we all deal with, Christian and non-Christian. If you put pride in a Petri dish, it will feed on just about anything. I mean, the slightest bit of praise the slightest bit of knowledge from God's word, the slightest bit of, of, of talent or admiration from others, you just put a little drop of that and, and pride's going to spread like crazy. But if you put a drop of humility on that pride, it'll shrivel up and die. It's the absolute antidote to pride. Pride, uh, you might say, is the cockroach of the Christian heart. <laughs> You know, cockroaches, they say, like, you know, after a, a nuclear war, the only thing that's going to be able to survive is a cockroach because it can survive pretty much anywhere. That's the way pride is in our heart. I mean, it can do it can live off just about anything. And it's kind of always there underneath the floorboards. But the only thing that drives it out is gospel humility. Finally, the, the reason we need to cultivate humility is because humility is the way of life that leads toward blessing and honor. I mean, that's what the, the craziness of, this, of the promise in this verse is all about. I mean, it sounds like uh, really crass prosperity <laughs> that God is saying, hey, if you're humble, if you fear the Lord, guess what you get? Riches, honor, and life. Now, we'll talk about that a little more, but at the very least, what God's word is saying here is that there is a reward for humility, that humility tends towards blessing and honor and joy. It's the path that leads to everything good that we want. Listen to this, Proverbs twenty-eight fourteen: Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart, whoever's prideful, will fall into calamity. Proverbs 15:33 The fear of the Lord is instruction and in wisdom and humility comes before honor. 
Proverbs 18, 12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty. It's lifted up, but humility comes before honor. Proverbs 29, 23, one's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. This pattern is all over the Bible. He who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Humility is hard work. But scripture teaches that humility has a reward. There is a reward for the work of humility. And that is riches and honor and life. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when you think, when you look at the book of Proverbs, you have to think this is God's instructions to his covenant people, right? So these aren't just words that God gives to any old people. It might seem like these are little fortune cookie sayings that just work no matter where you apply them out in the world. But Proverbs, these are God's special instructions to his covenant people about how to live as God's people in God's world. Because God's people made a covenant with God. God made a covenant with them to say, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And what Proverbs is, what what God's word is, it's his instructions to us on how to live as people of the covenant. And when people made a covenant in the ancient Near East, there were covenant curses and covenant blessings that were attached to it. Now, if you disobeyed the covenant, guess what? Covenant curses. If you obeyed the covenant, if you walked in the terms of the covenant with God, you received covenant blessings. And in the Old Testament, a lot of those covenant blessings were material. You get the land. You get an inheritance. And a lot of it was a physical inheritance. But what we know, because now we've seen the sweep of the entire Bible, is that there is an even better inheritance waiting for the Christian. Much better than anything that the Old Testament saints could have dreamed of. There are riches and honor in life in store for those who follow after Christ or those who walk according to God's ways, those who are in covenant with God. There are riches and honor and glory that would make King David blush to see what God has in store for his people in the new heavens and the new earth. And so what I'm saying is that the way into blessing, the way into covenant blessing is down. It's a low path. You have to stoop to get into the kingdom of heaven. In the end, this is the irony of the Bible. In the end, pride humiliates us, but humility honors us. So we know, we, we know what humility is. We know we need to get it. How do we get it? Well, first, let, let me be clear. Gospel humility comes by grace. It's God's gift to his people. Now, this is what it says in, in James 4, 6. Listen to this. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humility and grace, they walk together in the life of a Christian. But know this, God always moves first. When you feel sick over your sin, when you feel convicted of your pride, when you feel like there's something you ought to do, when you feel like there's uh, um, a virtue that you don't have that you should pray for, do you know how that got there? Did you drum that up in your own heart? 
Did you, did you somehow produce sorrow for your own sin? No. That's a gift from the Lord. God's grace always moves first. So God's convicting grace moves first and leads you in to humility. And there's kind of three moves in the Christian's life where humility gets applied. And, and let me just talk, talk about them right now. There's at conversion, in sanctification, and in glorification. First, at the very beginning of the Christian life, humility gets poured into our hearts because the way someone even becomes a Christian in the first place is by seeing their sin and recognizing their need for a Savior. The way you approach God in a saving way is you come like the tax collector in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember this? Jesus tells the story of two men going into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee walks in and he, and he, he kneels before God. Well, actually, no, he, he stands up before God. And he says, God, I'm so glad I'm not like all those other people, all those other sinners. I fast, I pray, I give money. Look at how great I am. And then a tax collector comes into the temple. He kneels down. He's laid low. He's sick with his sin. He doesn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But this is what he says. He says, God, have mercy on me, sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, that man went home justified before God. So the way we get forgiven, the way we get righteous, the way we get counted as righteous in God's presence is by coming to God as sinners. Coming to God as weak people. Coming to God as failures. Coming to God as people who are in need of grace. Who don't have anything to claim. Except our own sin. So at conversion, a person realizes two things. Number one, you're a sinner. And number two, you are loved by God. And it's entirely because of his mercy. This is what Tim Keller says. The gospel creates a new self-image. It humbles me before anyone because it tells you I'm a sinner saved only by grace. But it emboldens me before anyone because it tells me I'm loved and I'm honored by the only eyes in the universe that mean anything. So the gospel gives a boldness and a humility that do not eat each other up but can increase together. You come to the cross and you realize I am so sinful that God had to die for me. But then you come to the cross and you realize, I'm so loved that God died for me. And when those two thoughts exist together in a person's heart, that's the beginning of the Christian life. You are a sinner worse than you can imagine. And you are loved beyond your wildest dreams. So when that gets poured into your heart at conversion, that makes you humble. <laughs> and then as you walk through the Christian life, through this process of sanctification, what happens is, is you come to Christ and you're delivered from the power of sin. <laughs> you're delivered from the penalty of sin. But God in his infinite wisdom, he lets the presence of sin remain in the believer's life. And this is why if you've been walking with Christ for any amount of time, you know, guess what? You still sin. You still struggle with sin. And so this presence of sin in the believer's life 
One of its functions is to teach you to be dependent upon God alone. One of the purposes for the frustration that you feel at your attempts at righteousness, at your attempts at living wisely and at your own failures, God is trying to teach you how to walk with him, how to despair of trusting in yourself and how to walk towards him. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about how he received all these great, these exceedingly great visions, but God humbled him by giving him a thorn in his flesh to keep him from coming, becoming conceited. God troubled him. God gave him a cross to bear. God allowed him to suffer in this life so that he could learn dependence upon him. That's what the essence of sanctification is. Growing more and more in dependence upon God, forsaking sin and grabbing a hold of God. Uh, I might give you an illustration. Uh, when we moved into our house, uh, we had a fridge that was just kind of there. It was this old fridge, and it came with the house. And I was this guy right out of college, and I thought, sweet, free fridge. This is awesome. Uh, but it wasn't that great because one of the things about the fridge is that, you know, the plastic shelves were so warped in the door that uh, they, they just there was one that, that it really couldn't hold anything. So uh, I would try to set stuff up and um, and I, you know, I'd get all the salad dressing or something. I put it on this one shelf and anytime I put anything on the shelf, if I was at all being forgetful or just being careless, I'd try to rearrange stuff and I put it on this weak shelf, it would immediately fall and it would just shatter all over the ground. So you have ranch dressing all over the ground and I got so frustrated and but we, we left it in there for some strange reason. Uh, but what I realized is that that shelf was far too weak to carry anything. <laughs> I couldn't trust it. Now, what God teaches you in sanctification is that your heart is far too weak a vessel to carry anything. It can't carry your hopes. It can't carry your dreams. It can't carry, carry the hopes and dreams of other people. Your heart is far too leaky a vessel to put much trust in. But you know what it can hold? You know what a leaky, broken heart can hold? It can hold the mercy of God. You are a vessel that is fit to hold the mercy and the grace of God. And you're safe holding that. And in sanctification, God shows you how to despair of putting all of the weight of your life on your own heart. He allows it to collapse mercifully time and time again to show you, to teach you, to wean you off your self-love. And to teach you to trust in him. Now, there's some other kind of practical ways that we grow um, in humility in the Christian life. One is just through submitting to correction from other people, uh, realizing you're wrong, having a, a friend around you, a loved one, a brother, um, a sister, a spouse, uh, let you know uh, that you've sinned. So I, I just have a question. How, how recently have you said you're sorry? Humble people say they're sorry. Humble people are okay admitting that they've messed up. So one way to cultivate humility, one way to put uh, the evil of pride to death is, is just to admit that you were wrong. Um, the ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Proverbs fifteen thirty one. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Proverbs twenty eight thirteen. 
finally, you can, uh, one way that we can cultivate it is uh, you can follow the pattern of humiliation and exaltation that was in the life of Jesus Christ. Proverb uh, Philippians 2 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Uh, layman's terms, high schoolers, middle schoolers, this means you get into a car, you don't call shotgun. You take the worst seat. You let someone else take the best seat. You take that, that, that seat in the back, in the middle, that there's no room, you can barely find the seat belt. That's the seat that you take, and you let someone else take the best seat. Uh, be willing to take the place of a servant. Be willing to embrace suffering uh, because you know that it, it, it completely destroys pride. It's good. It's good for us to embrace suffering. It's good for us uh, to position ourselves as servants, for someone else to be honored, uh, for us to take the back seat. Um, but that's not the, the only uh, time that humility gets applied to us. The end of all of our stories, and, and this is beautiful, is that there will be a day when those who belong to Christ do not struggle with pride anymore. There are no proud people in heaven. In heaven, everyone is consumed not with themselves, but with the glory of God. This is what it says in Revelation 4. We read this early, earlier. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, they're focused on the throne, they're looking at the throne, they're speaking about him, and they're saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God. You can receive glory and honor and power. You created all things. By your will they existed and were created. In heaven, God alone gets the glory. And that's the end of the story for all those who have united themselves to Jesus Christ that there will be a day when the struggle with pride is over. And that is the place where Proverbs 22.4 finally gets fulfilled. That's where you get riches. That's where you get blessing. That's where you get honor. That's where you get life in ways that you could never even imagine. And so what I want to ask you to do is think about taking maybe a, a thousand-year investment plan in your life. Would you think about the, the arc of your life, not being something that lasts you know, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, but think about what's going to happen 1,000 years from now. And if in this life you take the back seat, if in this life you're humbled, if this life you forsake glory, honor, power, riches, what's going to happen 1,000 years from now? What's going to happen to that trend? But if you seek those things in this life, what reward is left for you? So I, I want to ask us this morning, do you see yourself from God's perspective? Can you see yourself with God's eyes? Do you know that you're the object of divine love? Do you know that you're an object of God's mercy? that you're a vessel of his grace, that he is pouring out his grace to you as a sinner, even now as he leads you through pain in this life, even now as he leads you through trials that are going to humble you, 
that are going to lay you low, even as he puts crosses into your life? Do you have a sense of his remaining with you, of his lifting up your head? If you want a reminder that God loves you, look to the cross. The cross shows the two things that we need to know, that we're a sinner, but that you're a loved sinner, a saved sinner, a redeemed sinner, an object of God's mercy and grace. Come, let's humble ourselves before the Lord so that he can lift up our heads.